my name is Rich, if I've not met you. Um, I'm often over at the South site and often involved with some of the, the youth work here. Um, yes, good. That's just my standard intro now. I just go for that and it gets me that and that's all good. Um, I understand that last week here you prayed for us. Um, you prayed for Emerge. Um, if you were here, thank you so much for doing that. We really, really value your prayers and um, we are loving seeing what God is doing in our young people and uh, your prayers really help that. So thank you very much. Um, this morning we're going to carry on in Acts. Um, Shocker. Uh, And uh, I want to say to you this morning, as we begin, that I am particularly very, very excited about what we're going to look at this morning. Um, You might uh, say that's probably quite a good job, that the guy (laughs) talking for half an hour is relatively interested in what we're going to look at. Um, I am really excited about what we're going to look at this morning. And that's um, for you, whether you're uh, landing in your seat at Lordswood this morning, very buzzing about Christianity or not really sure about it, or just tired from a week, or just haven't quite woken up yet. I am really excited about what we're going to look at. Um, Let me tell you why. Um, I'm not just trying to um, hype that up. Um, This morning we're going to look at two truths that kind of sneak in in Acts chapter 8, under the radar really. Two truths from a a life of a man called Simon. And uh, these two truths have absolutely transformed my life. Um, These two truths, more than any other truths that I've heard, (laughs) are the two truths that have changed my life the most. And I think that that can be true for you as well. Um, That's not happened perfectly. When I forget these truths, um, my life is not characterized by deep, rich joy like it can be. But when I remember these two truths, honestly, my life is completely enriched by joy. When I have these two truths big in my mind, um, these have changed me and shaped me and set me free. And Jesus says that when you know the truth, the truth sets you free. And I believe very strongly, because Jesus said it, but also because it's happened in my life and happens day by day in my life with these two truths, that that can happen this morning. And we can be set free into particularly into joy. And I don't mean happiness or um, frivolity or chirpiness, I mean deep joy, real joy, whatever's happening, joy that has substance, and that's what I think God wants to do through these two truths this morning. Um, These two truths have been particularly helpful to me when I felt either of these two um, things, um, self-conscious or disqualified. Uh, Perhaps it's just me, but I'm tempted to feel these two things. Um, These are kind of what it might look like in practice if you can't kind of grab those phrases and you don't kind of know really what that means. In your kind of inner conversation, if you're self-conscious, you'd say things like this in the back of your mind. What do people think of me? Did I get that right? Am I noticed? Why Why am I not noticed? Why am I so flipping noticed? I don't want people to notice me, (laughs) whichever way it might go for you, Um, or disqualified if they really knew what I'm like. I don't really belong here, and I so often let God down, or them down, or him down, or her down, depending on who you're thinking about. Now, I don't know whether that's just me, but I am tempted to feel self-conscious and disqualified in my life quite a bit. And maybe that is just me, but I think if that's you or if you're prone to that or if you're tempted to that, the truth can set people like that free this morning into joy that has substance. That's what we're going to do. Now, speaking of joy, I think that Acts chapter 8 is all about joy. Um, If you have a Bible, um, flick to Acts chapter 8. 
and we're going to kind of walk through it and refer to it. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. It will come up on the screen. Um, But let me tell you why I think Acts chapter 8 is about joy. Um, Let's just kind of set the scene. Um, Look at verse 4. We're going to meet this guy called Simon in a moment, but stick uh, verse 4 up, um, and we'll have a little look at uh, where we are. Um, And this is why I think it's all about joy. Now, those who are scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Just to pause there and catch us up. Do you remember last week... um, uh, who was it? Jonathan preached to us about this really tragic, dark moment where this early Christian leader, one of our, one of our family, uh, gets, gets kind of assassinated for his faith. Do you remember that? Stephen? And he gets, he gets brutally killed because he's a Christian. And what happens is that when that happens, the Christians in Jerusalem kind of end up being scattered out across the region. And that's who these guys are. So those who were scattered went around preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaim the Christ. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this, but if your axe hat is on, your axe radar is functioning well, you've charged your axe radar batteries overnight, and they're ready and raring to go, the word Samaria will release you into dancing and whooping of delight and amazement. I see it's happening around the room. Um, Why is that? Well, you might have caught it on the video, um, but what does Jesus promise at the start of Acts? He says, when the Holy Spirit comes to you, you will be my witnesses, in Jerusalem, Judea, I do this every time, don't I? And Samaria, right? And to the ends of the earth. And when Jesus says that, everyone else in Jerusalem thinks he's dead. And they're this little pathetic bunch of strange people who are shaking in their boots. And it doesn't look like it's going to happen. But when Jesus says something, you can bet your bottom dollar it's going to happen, whichever which way it happens. And almost by accident, They've scattered out, and now they're in Samaria, and they're witnessing to the resurrection. This is happening. This is like several years on, but they're there, and it's happening. Jesus always comes good on his word, and they're in Samaria proclaiming the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard, well, Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed so... This is what happens when Christianity lands in a place. There was much joy in that city. When Christianity scatters out accidentally to Samaria, it doesn't crush Samaria, it doesn't ruin Samaria, it doesn't bring Samaria to the ground, it brings Samaria much joy. And that's what happens in a life when the Jesus thing lands in it. Much joy is possible, much joy is available when the Christianity revolution lands somewhere, joy is meant to be the response. Not happiness, not chirpiness. Joy. And the next word is a real mood killer. Um, Look at the next word. There was much joy in that city, but. (laughs) Right? Uh, Oh, no. Right? And that word is really a very strong word that is deliberately used by Luke to mean, well, but. (laughs) It means the thing I've said but this other thing that's really different to the thing I've said. Jesus uses it when he says, um, you have heard it said, ABC, but now I tell you, DEF, right? It's a deliberate, this contrasts with this, and so Luke is saying there is much joy available, but some of the things we're going to see in Acts chapter 8, particularly in this guy Simon, are joy blockers, Joy killers, joy threats, joy enemies, things that 
get in the way of the much joy that is meant to be there when Christianity lands in a life. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at two joy blockers and explore how we can be set free into joy through this guy, Simon. Just to say before we look at him, um, Simon, it's not Simon Peter, who's kind of one of the early leaders of the church. This guy, Simon, is uh, what is described as a magician. And uh, when I read that, I go, hmm, what does this mean? And uh, I think what this means is not that he's into card tricks and sleight of hand and up-close tricks, which I don't think this is like an anti-card trick sermon, (laughs) okay? Um, What this is, I think, is what we would see in Acts is that Simon is dabbling in really dark spirituality, spirituality that is, is not the holy spirituality, <laughs> but is, um, is unholy spirituality and is, is dangerous. And we in kind of the West, would, would, though we would believe in a God who breathes out the universe and a Jesus who's now alive, having been dead, we kind of go, that's as far as we go on spiritual stuff. And uh, we would be cynical about such things as this. But this is a reality in the Bible, and there's dark spirituality, and we don't want to go near it. And so I'm not really going to go near it today, and we're just going to move on from that. So let's look at Simon the Magician um, and see two joy blockers in his life, um, starting at verse 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Um, We're going to skip to verse 18 here um, because just to say in this passage there's a a thing all about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and uh, rather than just dip into it every week when that comes up um, we've loaded up Andy Martin, Westside's own Andy Martin, on the first sermon of June to absolutely nail the baptism of the Holy Spirit thing and really go for that really well. So we're not skipping it because it's not important. We're not just going to dabble in it. We're going to really go for it in the first talk of June when Andy's doing it, uh, not me. So that's great. So verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity, which I think means he's in a very, very bad place, okay? And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. This is Simon. It's a very intense story about a very intense bloke. Um, And let's get into his head and his heart and see what's blocking his joy and how we can learn from that and be set free. Now, the first thing I want to talk to you about is amazement. 
okay? Amazement. I don't know about you, but I never feel more alive and invigorated and pumped up than when I'm standing before something that is amazing or incredible or stunning, right? I don't know if you can picture that. What gets, takes your breath away? Is it the Grand Canyon when you're on a holiday or the top of the Licky Hills, um, just a, <laughs> the top of the Licky Hills on a sunrise or something like that, or or is it um, when you're when you're at a wedding? It doesn't have to be your wedding, but you're there and um, there's sort of the awkward small talk bit, and then and then please stand for the entrance of the bride, and you look to kind of the back corner or whatever it is, and there's just as she comes in, there's just this wow moment, wow, amazing. Right? Or if anyone saw Nemanja Matic's goal for Chelsea the other week. Yeah? I knew you'd love it. <laughs> right, sorry. Sorry on this side of the room. Nemanja Matic is not a player who scores amazing goals. Nemanja Matic scored an incredible goal. And the camera zoomed in on his teammates on the bench. And what happened was that they all basically like had a fit of joy on the bench as they saw this goal. They all it w- zoomed in on Zuma and he just went, oh, like this. Because when you see something amazing, whether it's a, yes, Georgie boy, whether, when you see something amazing, whether it's the Grand Canyon or Nemanja Matic's goal, you feel alive because you are absolutely, the Bible says, made to be amazed at something. That is no accident. The Bible says that put into you by God, whatever your religious affiliation, is a deep desire, as real as your DNA, to be amazed and shout wow at something and to be utterly fixated, consumed with something. That is, you can't can't fight that. Every minute of every day of every life in this room and on this planet is amazed, fixated in awe of something or someone all the time. We are made to be amazed. Now, I don't know what amazes you, what gets you going, what, what you daydream about when you're listening to a sermon, or what you're, what you're passionate about, or what is amazing for you. But look at Simon. What is amazing for Simon? What is Simon fixated on? What is the center of Simon's vision? Look at verse 9. There was a man named Simon saying that he himself was somebody great. Right? Forget the magic. He himself was someone great. He is the man. Have you met Simon? He is the man. He is the guy. He is incredible. He just floats with glory. He's astonishing. Have you been blessed enough to be near him? He's amazing. He's phenomenal. He retweets all his own positive praise on Twitter. He absolutely loves himself. He can't stop thinking about himself, reflecting on what he's been doing. He absolutely loves it. And you can tell from that he's not British, right? (laughs) Because we've learned, haven't we, in Britain, and potentially as Christians, we've, many of us don't really walk around going, I'm amazing! Woo! Right? Around Birmingham. Like on a particularly boring day off, I might try it in the future. But we, 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 we don't do that, do we? Because we're British. None of us shout that we're amazing, but this is where the insecurity thing comes in. I think we all have a huge addiction to being fixated with ourselves. Uh, It was Martin Luther, um, a guy who kind of reformed the church, um, who said this. He said that the result of the fall of man and God going their separate ways is that humanity 
is now curved in on himself. That we were made to be stretched out in awe of divine magnitudes of glory and beauty and wonder in relationship with God forever. But that what we've done is because we've turned away from that wonder, we've shriveled up a bit and we're now just fixated with ourselves as a, as a species. That what we've done, if you like, is we've taken the, the camera of our souls that is made to go widescreen, HD, Technicolor, and capture Yahweh, and we've, I'm not digging at selfies, I take them all the time, but we've turned our spiritual camera around so that what we look at an awful lot is ourselves. And that's what's going on with Simon here. He's fixated with himself. Now, you might be thinking, you have missed the mark here, mate. That is not me at all. Um, And I want to say I believe you, but let me just show you a bit of a spectrum of self-fixation. And let me see if that kind of wins you over. The self-conscious spectrum um, has two ends. Um, Over here, we have the I'm amazing end. And on this side, we have the I'm terrible end. That is not related to the size of the room, I should say. Um, Now, at the I'm amazing end... Um, when I'm at that end, this is what I do. And maybe you relate to this. I am like Simon. I am the man. Wow. That is linked to normally successful moments in my life. Um, and probably when I'm senior in a room compared to other people. So, for example, give me a job as a youth worker. Right? And put me in a room where occasionally I might do a talk that goes really well. And put me in with younger people. And I'm like, I'm amazing. I am amazing. Thank you. There's a rich pit glory train coming through this station. Get out the way. Woo! Right? And it happens if I'm kind of senior in another way. So if I'm the most confident in a room socially, or if I'm the funniest in the room, or the most knowledgeable about football, politics, whatever it is we're talking about, or sort of in the top 3% in the room at least, then I'm the man. Right? Now what happens is when someone uh, spots me dancing around up this end, they'll give me a nudge. Um, or by some miracle, my, my, my uh, conscience will, uh, will help me realize, and I don't want to be at that end because that's really ugly, and we know that's ugly, and that's pride, and that's horrible. So I've got a solution. What I do is I dance on down to this end. I'm terrible end, and what happens here is I'm not the man. <laughs> um, I am a failure. Uh, I'm so insecure. Um, it comes when I failed at something or I'm junior in a room. So, for example, put me in a staff room with other people who are older than me, and I'm new, and then I say something that doesn't quite land or doesn't get rapturous applause the moment it leaves my lips, and I'm like, oh no, why did I say that? Oh no, oh, should I have said it? Oh, and Owen will recognize it. (laughs) Should I have said it? Sorry, I'll resign. I'll quit. I'll just leave the planet, right? Or if I'm not the funniest in a room, or I'm not the most knowledgeable, then I feel very insecure. And maybe it's just me, but I feel this sense of, thank you, I am amazing. That's the application point. (laughs) And I feel this sense of, not self-amazement, but self-loathing, really. And I kind of bounce between the two. I don't know where you land. Now, here's the thing. What is the common thread with those two ends of the spectrum? Okay. Amazing me or terrible me, right? 
What's the, what's the thing? They're both absolutely fixated with me. And it kills joy. <laughs> right? The arrogant self-lover and the apologetic self-loather are both falling for the same trick. They are both preoccupied with themselves, be it for good or for bad. And it kills our joy. Every success that you have if you're at the I'm Amazing end is tainted with the realization that the next test is coming soon. The next room to be funny in is coming up. Every good deed I do is tainted by the demand for people to notice or, or tell me or tell someone. Every critique or feedback is a threat to me. Every failure is crushing. My inner conversation is whirring and it tires me out. Because I'm self-fixated. Now, I said this was going to release us into joy. I guess we're not there yet, right? But what is the solution to self-fixation? I just want to be really clear. It is not to beat yourself up. That is not Christianity. As Owen prayed, uh, we have been crucified with Jesus, right? And occasionally in the Bible, it tells us to, to kind of remember that, and it uses language like put to death the old self or crucify the old self or kind of remember that that's happened, right? It never says in the Bible, relentlessly beat up yourself. <laughs> it never tells you to do that. That's not Christianity, and that's not humility. Um, Tim Keller has a phrase where he says, real humility is not thinking less of yourself. I'll finish that phrase at the end. But it's not thinking less of yourself. That's, that's not the goal here, okay? So what's the solution? Right, look at what it was for Simon and his mates. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. What's the solution? It wasn't, you're amazing, Simon. And it wasn't, you are terrible, Simon. It was someone turned up and preached to him a message that wasn't about Simon, (laughs) but was about another. Someone preached to him about a bigger kingdom than his, a bigger inner conversation than his, a bigger reputation than his. Someone showed him the HD Technicolor widescreen image that he was made for, He saw at work power and greatness bigger than his, and he was truly amazed. Guys, the answer to arrogance is not to hate yourself, it is to forget yourself and get captivated by the greatness of God. The answer to crippling insecurity is not to try and feel better about yourself, it is to forget yourself and be blown away by real greatness. To be God fixated. Tim Keller's phrase humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Because there's just another thing in my life now. I'm not bouncing around on this pathetic little spectrum of yay me, oh me, yay me, oh me. God is great, God is big. Let's think about that. Uh, G.K. Chesterton put it like this um, in a very G.K. Chesterton sort of way that people with moustaches and glasses like that tend to, he says this, Christianity came into the world in order to assert with violence that man had not only to look inwards, but to look outwards, 
to behold with astonishment and enthusiasm a divine company and a divine captain. The only fun of being a Christian is that a man is not left alone with the inner light, but recognizes an outer light, fair as the sun, clear as the moon, terrible in the real sense of the word, as an army with banners. That is the amazement that your whole soul and being was made for. You were made to shout wow at that. You were made to see your God, the king of the cosmos, and shout how great thou art, and thus be liberated from self-fixation. Now doing that, getting your eyes up onto Jesus a million times a day instead of onto yourself, good or bad, but him has absolutely astonishing power to break chains that are really flipping heavy and tightly locked in a life. And I'm going to tell you about a little um, story about this woman, Emma Scrivener, and her experience won't be your experience necessarily, it may be, um, but I hope that this little story brings you faith that looking to Jesus changes real lives on the ground and brings joy. Let me tell you about Emma. Um, Emma is um, uh, a Christian, and she lives in Eastbourne, which is where I went to uni. And Emma, for her whole kind of um, life from adolescence through until today, um, it's not been solved perfectly, has struggled with eating disorders. Um, that's kind of reared up in her teenage years, and uh, through her life, that's something that she still struggles with. She's a Christian. Um, she's seen real change but also still struggles, um, but says that Jesus is absolutely with her in it. And she's written this autobiography called A New Name, Grace and Healing for Anorexia. And I really love that because grace, because it's still really hard and it's still really messy and it's not just quick fixes, but healing because there can be real change because of Jesus as well. And I love that subtitle. It's really careful and sensitive. Grace and Healing for Anorexia. And let me tell you about a moment in her life, it's the end of her autobiography, where she was shaking in self-loathing is the phrase she uses. So she's not Simon, oh, go me! She's the other end of the spectrum, times a million at this point in her life, and she's shaking, and she's in her living room, and um, she turns in her Bible that's on the table, on the coffee table, to Revelation, where it has that very odd image of Jesus, where it says his eyes are like fire and his feet are like bronze and his hair is like wool and his mouth has a sword coming out of it and it's you know it's odd if you draw it in kids work but it's it's like this amazing image of the intensity of Jesus and his risen power and glory right and she turns to that bit in Revelation and she reads it shaking with self-loathing and she says this as I read the word sparked and then burst into life For as long as I could remember, I'd been far too intense, more than anyone could be expected to manage, too concentrated, too needy, too messy, too much. Yet here was someone else, someone more passionate than me. Here was a vision that caught my breath, radiant, terrible, beautiful, irresistible, a face like the sun, uncontainable, blinding, whose intensity swallowed mine like candlelight in noonday brilliance. Eyes that blazed like fire, who could dare to meet his gaze? A voice like rushing waters, what words could I add? Before me stood the living God, those eyes, that voice, no masks or performances can keep him at bay. 
And from there, she writes about how it's still hard. But the key to joy for Emma is not self-loathing or self-love. It's Jesus and getting captivated by him. That's what we're made for. And it brings joy. Um, Now, um, I said that there would be two things that I'd talk about. Um, Time is massively against us. Um, But we're going to quickly finish with another joy blocker. So self-fixation is a joy blocker. And let's just look at one more in Simon's life. Um, Do you remember that bit? We're just going to do this really quickly. That bit in the passage where he, um, he talks about how he wants the Holy Spirit and he wants to pay for him, right? You'd know that about Simon, perhaps, that he comes to the apostles and says, I want in on this, and he comes with, with gold and silver to buy the Holy Spirit, right? What's that about? What is that about? Simon is going to struggle for joy because he's fixated with himself. He's also going to struggle for joy because he's allergic to grace. He is grace intolerant. The idea of grace just... Oh, just puts him off. Here Simon is wanting to be blessed by God, the God who is in the business of saving and blessing and bringing much joy to Samaritans. (laughs) And Simon wants to belong and wants to be used by God and wants to be welcomed God, but he turns up and tries to buy off that God with cash, with, with grubby little coins in his hands. And you might think that that's a sign of respect to God, to come to um, earn your way in by paying with a bit of wealth, to give your gifts to God to win his favor. You might think that's a sign of honor. You know, Peter's response bursts that bubble really quickly. You see, Peter goes insane. He's like yelling at him. How dare you say things like that? How dare you think you could obtain the gift of God with money? Are you mad? Because to a God who has already paid for you to come to him, who paid an infinitely higher price than a couple of quid in your hand to turn up trying to pay your way in to this God is actually offensive to God because he's already paid for us. This God is gracious. You get blessed by this God by grace. What does grace mean? Grace means undeserved kindness. <laughs> you can't have the grace of God if you think you deserve it. That's just grammatically doesn't work. Grace means undeserved kindness. And so for someone like Simon to come thinking he can buy his way in, he's going to miss joy because he's allergic to grace. And I do that all the time with God. I do that all the time, not, not necessarily with money, but like on the gift day at one, I'm almost there, <laughs> right? But not, not, not just with money, but I come to God with stuff in my hand to get blessed by him all the time. Uh, with my moral record of the last 48 hours, uh, with how well my work is going, with how good a husband I feel I've been, with with what I've read in the Bible that week or that, or that I haven't read the Bible that week. And I come to church some Sundays convinced I'm going to get blessed and some Sundays convinced I could never be blessed because he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. And there's no joy there. That will kill your joy. Hands that come to God with payment don't get blessed by God. The only hands that get 
blessed by God are hands that come empty, that refuse to stuff a load of stuff in there and say, look what I bring. Empty hands get blessed by this God because he's a God of grace. And that is why Jesus is able to say with no irony and no kind of tongue-in-cheek and no nudge-nudge, wink-wink, isn't this silly, that blessed, happy, abundantly full to the brim are the poor and the meek and the persecuted and the hungry. Those who, if you notice, in all of those situations have diddly squat to their name, but they can be really blessed because God is a God of grace. And that means that anyone in this room who feels disqualified or that they don't belong, all you have to muster up to belong before this God is nothing. Can you, can you stir some of that up in your soul? <laughs> can, you, can you think about your week and stir up a load of nothing to bring him? Could you do that? If you can do that, you are qualified to come to this God because he's a God who blesses by grace, undeserved kindness. And that means that anybody in this room, religious for your whole life or first time in a church today, with all of your actual flaws and inconsistencies and inadequacies and hurts and actual ness at times, can be abundantly blessed by heaven forever for free. Because God is gracious. Now let's just finish with this. These are the kind of things that I said you might feel, um, that I'm tempted to feel. There's just no joy there. I say, oh, I don't feel thinking. I'm sorry. Jesus is amazing. Let's be fixated with him. Let us let the worship time that follows this talk and the break stir our affections and our vision for the awe of God. Not that you'd feel great or bad about you, but he is hugely brilliant and that liberates us. And if you're feeling disqualified, do do I really belong? If they really knew what I'm like, (laughs) it's offensive to come to God on those terms. Come with your emptiness on the basis of his grace. You are welcome, whoever you are, I promise you, because of the grace of God.